So what was the last thing you prayed for? Now, I'm not talking about blessing your Count Chocula this morning at breakfast, okay? I'm talking about a real prayer. You know, something that, that your heart and your mind have just been longing for. That thing that kind of consumes you a little bit. That thing you've been praying for that you want to have in your life or that thing you've been praying for that you want to get rid of in your life. That thing in your life that you're longing to see or longing to know or that thing that you're longing to change. What's been that passionate prayer in your life? And has there been a response? Did your prayer get answered? Did your prayer not get answered? Are you still waiting for an answer? Four years ago, at the age of 33, Betsy Childs Howard wrote an article about being single. And this is the question that she asked in the article. If God wants me to be single, why hasn't he taken away my desire for marriage? Pretty fair question, right? I mean, God, I'm 33. I, I want to be married, but I'm not. So what's the deal? Why won't you take this desire away? Maybe you have a prayer like that. Or maybe your prayer is different. Maybe your prayer is, is not about who you're going to marry, but struggling with the person you did marry, you know? Having, having, a, having a rough spot, having a, a rough week. And your prayers are more like, God, why won't my husband step up to the plate? Or God, why won't my wife step into the ballpark? Or maybe it's not about marriage and singleness at all. Maybe your prayers are, are something different. And you're saying, God, I'm, I'm trying really hard, but why can't I make the team? God, I'm trying really hard, but, but why can't my grades get better? God, I'm trying really hard, but why can't I get into that school? God, I'm trying really hard, but why can't I get a better job? God, I'm trying really hard, but why can't I cook a better brisket? Right? That's real, right? Brisket's hard. So all of those things are good desires, they're good prayers, there's nothing wrong with those things, so why wouldn't God try to, try to meet those? Listen to Betsy's question again. If God wants me to be single, why hasn't he taken away my desire for marriage? And she gives a couple of responses to that question. First goes like this. Some would answer the question by saying that God allows this desire to persist because he does, in fact, want me to be married. And then she goes on. And they suggest that if I just adjust my idea of the kind of man I could marry, or if I date online, God will give me a husband. Some people say that. But then she says this. It's possible that God may intend for my heart to continue to desire marriage without intending to satisfy that desire. I mean, that doesn't sound right at first glance, right? Why, why would God let her continue to have a desire that wasn't going to be met? We're going to have an answer to that in just a little bit. But all of us, whether it is a relationship or an accomplishment in life or barbecue nourishment, you know, we've all had a moment where a desire was not met. We've all experienced this moment where we wanted something to happen. We prayed for something to happen, and it didn't happen. So what do we do with that? What do we do with an unmet desire? And what does God 
have to do with our unmet desires? Well, we're going to try to find out, but interestingly, it starts before your mind ever even has a desire. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 4, as we continue in our series, Be Cool. Delight yourself in the Lord. What does it mean to delight yourself in something? Well, it means to take pleasure in something. It means to be pleased with something. It means, by definition of the word, to lean in to something. So imagine you're at a a big banquet somewhere, and there's a, a dessert table, and there's four desserts on the table, okay? There's cheesecake, there's bread pudding, there's lemon meringue pie, and there's triple layer chocolate cake, okay? All right, so cheesecake, bread pudding, lemon meringue pie, triple layer chocolate cake. Okay, now, all of you just now leaned into one of those desserts as I read them, all right? I mean, your mind leaned to one of those desserts. That's how we are. You know, you have a a natural tendency toward, you know, bread pudding. You know, the best bread pudding is made with Krispy Kreme donuts. Just a tip. Um, If you've never done it, try it. Phenomenal. Uh, Use a lot of cinnamon, though. It, It helps. So you have a leaning, you know, toward a dessert. Now, some of us don't lean toward one. We lead toward three of those four desserts that I mentioned, right? But, but we have a lean. We, we know what it means to, to lean into something. We have a, a desire. Or maybe you're somebody that doesn't desire any of those four desserts, right? Maybe for health reasons, you don't eat desserts. Or maybe, bless your heart, you're not a dessert person, you know? Right? Okay. But, but we all get it, right? We, we know that, that this thing about delight, we know what it means. We know what it means to take pleasure in something, to delight in something, to desire something, to lean toward something. See, we know what it means to delight in certain foods and in certain seasons and certain holidays. We delight in certain types of books and certain types of cars and certain types of clothes. We delight in things. Certain things make us happy. We lean toward So the question is, how much do you lean toward God? Like first thing in the morning, are you quick to kind of lean toward God? Are you quick to delight in God? Or are you slow to lean toward God? Are you slow to delight in God? Or are you quicker in the morning to lean toward the snooze button, right? Are you quicker to, to lean toward quickly looking at your social media app? Are you quicker to lean toward, you know, a good cup of coffee? Are you quicker to to lean toward the newspaper or the the morning wake-up talk show? Are you quicker to lean toward sports updates on the Ocho, you know? Or are you quicker to lean toward 15 to 27 minutes of of jazzercise, you know, in the morning? Are, Are you a leaner toward all these other things? If so, if those things are your first and utmost lean, then by definition, they are your first and utmost delight. That sounds like a strong statement. Hang in there with me for just a second. We're not saying that if you have a cup of coffee before you read your Bible, that you delight in coffee more than you delight in God, okay? That's not what we're saying. Although some of you know you're really close to that line, okay? (laughs) What we're saying here is this, is God your primary lean? Do you lean toward God first and utmost. 
Has your heart learned what it means to enjoy the glory of God, what it means to be happy in God, what it means to be captivated with the beauty and the majesty of the glory of God? King David was one of the greatest kings that ever lived on the earth. Now, I don't know the etymology of when your majesty started being used you know, to, to talk to royalty. But, but let's just imagine that when David was king, that lots and lots and lots of times that he heard, your majesty, you know, your majesty, your breakfast is ready. Your majesty, your royal cowboy boots have been chined. Your majesty, the royal camel is waiting for you at the front gate. Your Majesty, the Royal Bacon Council that you convene is now waiting for you in chambers. Your Majesty, the Duke of Wesselton is waiting for you outside and wants to talk to you really soon. He, he probably heard Your Majesty over and over and over again. But that king, when he got around 60 years old, wrote, you know what, I'm learning that what I need to do most is delight myself in the Lord. And that king who heard Your Majesty, Your Majesty, Your Majesty to him all day long This is what he wrote. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The one who is always hearing your majesty, he wrote and said, God, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Now listen, could we go to some remote village in some remote part of the world and, and in a hut somewhere find a, you know, a poster of, of I don't know, Elvis or, or you know, Michael Jackson or Lady Gaga or SpongeBob or Alex Trebek or somebody like, you know, a poster, you know, of, of some celebrity on the wall? Yes, we could. We could find a poster of a celebrity somewhere in a remote part of the world. But see, David is not writing about a celebrity He's not writing about a a spot in the world where someone might worship and enjoy a certain celebrity or even a certain idol. He's saying this, there is not a square foot of the earth where the glory and the power and the majesty and the love and the grace and mercy of God is hidden. Can't be. There's no speck of dust on the earth where the majesty of God is not revealed. That is. His majesty. Listen, you might be the king of your hunting club. You might be the queen of your book club. You might be the prince charming of your high school. You might be the homecoming queen. But your name is not majestic in all of the earth. But the God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob, the God of Ruth, the God of David, the God of Mary and Joseph, the God of the Apostle Paul, the God of Perpetua, the God of Augustine, the God of Martin Luther, the God of Fanny Crosby, the God of Billy Graham, the God of Elizabeth Elliot, the God of some of your parents and some of your grandparents, that God so loved this world that he gave his son to save this world, to save us and rescue us, and that God, his name is majestic in all of the earth. All of the earth. And David says, delight in him. (laughs) Go get that poster. Delight in God because there's no place that his majesty does not reach. 
Now I want you to think about that because this week we've all had at least one moment where we sat, even if we didn't say it out loud or think it out loud, going, God, why is this happening? God, why isn't this different? God, why are you allowing this to take place? And David wants us to know in no uncertain terms that the majesty of God is right there. It's right there. We may not be able to see it, but it's not hidden from that moment. It's not hidden from that spot. John Gerardo was the pastor of Zion Church in Charleston, South Carolina in the mid-1800s. At least once a year, I try to share this quote, and I'm going to try to be faithful to do it because it, it's just rocking cool. It's just good. And this is what he said to close the sermon one day. Look up. God, your Redeemer and Deliverer, reigns. Suns and systems of light are but the sparkling dust beneath his feet. Infinite empire is in his grasp. See, see he comes riding upon the wings of the whirlwind, wielding his glittering sword, bathed in the radiance of heaven, driving his foes like chaff before his face and hastening to the help of his saints with resources of boundless power and unlimited grace. See, he sits on yonder throne. That's good. (laughs) Tattoo that last line on your brain. See, he sits on yonder throne. Listen, sleep is good. Coffee is good. Jazzercise is good, I guess. I don't know. Sports updates, news updates, they're good. Social media, 49% good, okay? These things are good. It's okay. But the gravitational pull of those things cannot in any way create majesty in all of the earth. But the gravitational pull of the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the power and the grace and the mercy and the love of God, that gravitational pull creates majesty in all the earth. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the one who is known as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is known as holy, 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 his gravitational pull creates majesty in all of earth. So, if that's true, then really, we should listen to David. We should delight ourselves in him. We should lean toward him. We should be captivated by the majesty of God. We should be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. In a sense, we should be obsessed with the majesty of God. We should lean toward God. Charles Spurgeon put it in a very interesting way. In certain sense, imitate the wicked. They delight in their portion. Take care to delight in yours. And so far from envying, you will pity them. Wicked people delight in their sin. Wicked people love their sin. And Spurgeon is saying, man, if they love their sin... Why would we as believers not love our God? Why would we not delight in our God? That's a fair question, right? 
I mean, why is it that we can't take the same intense joy and, and really day-long emotional investment that we make toward our favorite college sports team and take that same kind of joy and not just imitate it, but surpass it for the one who sits on yonder throne. Why is it that we can't take the, the deep emotion, the deep devotion, the deep honor that we rightly have in our earthly citizenship and imitate that and surpass it for our citizenship in the heaven of the one who sits on yonder throne? Our salvation is not a, a prison of religious rules. No, our salvation is this guaranteed promise of, of hope and joy and peace and freedom that can never go away. So when we talk about delighting in the Lord, it's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. It's something that actually creates hope in our hearts. And that's important because you know what? Sometimes in the third quarter, your team will not create hope in your heart, <laughs> right? And just a word of caution, let's remember not to expect 17 to 21-year-old young men dictate our lives. Remember, they're young men. They're doing their best. And what they do on the field never touches the majesty of the one who sits on yonder throne. Can't happen. We should not pity those who enjoy the greatest pleasures of this world. I'm sorry, we should not envy them. We should pity them. We should pity them because the majesty they experience in whatever that pleasure may be, whatever that, that, that wealth or, or those riches or that moment or that fantastic event, whatever it is they might experience in that moment, the majesty of that moment is like this. It's a breath, it's a mist, it's a, a vapor. But the majesty of the one who sits on yonder throne is forever and ever and ever, and that's why we delight in him. And that's why as David turns 60, he goes, man, what's most important? Ah, I need to delight more in the one who sits on yonder throne. I need to delight in the Lord. David gives us another motivator for having that kind of delight Look at verse 4 again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's cool, right? God's like a genie of the lamp, you know? As long as we sing a verse of the old rugged cross or Lord, I lift your name on high before we drink our coffee, and then we ask God for whatever we want, we get it, right? That's, that's what that means, right? No, that's not what that means. Hours before he was arrested, Jesus was talking to his closest friends, and this is what he said to them, John 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Well, hang on, that sounds just like what David just said. You ask for something and you'll get it. Delight in something and God will give you the desire what gives. It sounds like Jesus is giving the mission statement of Veruca Salt Baptist Church, right? Remember Veruca Salt, don't you? Yeah. She was probably the rudest and brattiest kid in the whole Willy Wonka crowd. She was always standing around saying things like, I want the world 
I want the whole world. I want to lock it all up in my pocket. Give it to me now. You know, she made the faces too, you know. And then her dad, Wonka, all right, how much for an Oompa Loompa? You know, it was like, oh, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll, I'll find it. See, some people, they approach God like their Veruca salt and, and God's Mr. Salt, you know. Hey, Daddy, I want something, so give it to me now. And as long as I just kind of act like I like you, hey, I gave you Easter, Christmas, and a few more Sundays this year, come on, what gives? We tend to have an attitude that as long as, as we say, well, my, my desires are for God, so he'll give me whatever I want. We say, well, I mean, it's guaranteed. I mean, Jesus said it. I mean, Jesus said all I have to do is just say his name at the end of it. I want a Ferrari in Jesus' name. Yeah, that's it. I want a million dollars in Jesus' name. I want a pony in Jesus' name. I want to be handsome in Jesus' name. I want to be pretty in Jesus' name. That's, that's not what's happening. It's not what Jesus was saying. It's not what David was saying. Just think about how we pray sometimes. We pray things that sound like this. God, please make this happen. God, please don't do this. God, please give me this. I was listening to a sermon this week, and he was talking about, he goes, just think about how we pray sometimes. He said, think, you know, we, we pray, God, you know, please be, you know, with Sally at 2.30 today. She's having surgery over at Memorial Hospital, and she'll be in surgery room, you know, 4.33. You know, just, just pray, God, just, just be with her. <laughs> and he said, you know, don't you think there has to be a time where God goes, yes, Sally, I, I created her. Um, yeah, I know who she is. I know what's happening. I know where she is right now. I know Dr. Ebenezer that's doing the surgery. I created him too, you know. And he just started going through all this stuff. And it's like, if you think about it, our prayers sound kind of silly sometimes, you know. It's like we're giving God our calendar information instead of just stepping into the conversation and saying, oh, you who sit on yonder throne, help me pray. Help me follow you. Help me love you. And please be merciful to Sally and Dr. Ebenezer and, and everyone else. What would change in our lives if our prayers sounded more like this? Lord, break me of my pride. Lord, bend me toward your will. Lord, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Do you think things would, would change if, if our approach to God was something a little more like that? See, when Jesus said, if you'll pray in my name, you'll, you'll have it. The idea is this. Jesus prayed in a way that brought glory to God. In other words, Jesus was praying in such a way that whatever his prayer was, it was so that God would get attention, so that God would be famous, so that God would be glorified. And so when we begin to look at praying things in Jesus' name, we have to pray in such a way that the desires of our prayers would match the desires of Jesus. Otherwise, the math is all off. John MacArthur put it this way, in the name of Jesus means more for the name. So we pray in such a way that says, okay, is what I'm praying for the glory of God, all right? I, the Ferrari probably is not going to be, okay? I mean, I can't say definitively, but probably not, you know. Is, is this something that's going to bring attention and fame and glory to God? How, how can this prayer be a reflection of my delight in the Lord instead of my delight in getting 
something. If we're going to ask for things in Jesus' name, we have to ask with his desires. I could write a check for an amount of money that I don't have in my checking account, but that check's not going to clear, right? We can't pray prayers that are not consistent with the character and the nature and the desires of Jesus. Alexander McLaren put it this way, the great reason why life is troubled and restless lies not without but within. Just hang on that first part for a second. The great reason why life is troubled and restless lies not without but within. Anybody been troubled or restless this week? He goes on, it is not our changing circumstances but our unregulated desires that rob us of peace. Unregulated desires that rob us of peace. And he goes on, one desire unfulfilled is enough to banish tranquility, but how can it survive a dozen dragging different ways? One desire is enough to steal our peace. Or maybe put another way, one unanswered prayer request is enough to cause us to turn from God, to quit delighting in Him, to quit leaning on Him. How do we know that's true? Just like look at our own lives, right? I mean, really just like do this for yourself. What was that thing you prayed about that didn't get answered? How did you react? How about this? What is that thing you're praying about right now that is not getting answered? How are you reacting? See, the reality is we we don't have to work really hard to see that when it comes to our prayers going unanswered, we don't always keep leaning toward God. In fact, if we're honest, I'll just confess for us, oftentimes if our prayers go unanswered, and, and I'm saying unanswered in our economy, not that they're completely unanswered because God is ruling the world from yonder throne. But from our perspective, if our prayers go unanswered, we tend to be a little bitter before we get a little better, right? If our prayers go answered, we, we are prone to kind of lean into anger or frustration, sometimes discouragement or even depression. Sometimes if our prayers go answered, we even lean into being more moral. We, we get more religious, we begin to say, oh, you know what, if I could, you know, just, just work a little harder at work and, and be more moral in the community and be a better church member, surely God will eventually and soon reward me for my family values and my conservative voting record. But the reality is those things will not satisfy our actual souls. And McLaren's right. One unfulfilled desire, it can rob us of the peace that God has given us in Christ. And we start focusing on the unfulfilled desire instead of all the desires that God fulfills. It doesn't have to be that way, though. This is the math that Apostle Paul used. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. So as many as the promises of God, in Jesus, those promises are yes. So, so what does that mean for you? I love this very long question here, two long questions from John Piper. Are you living in the fullest enjoyment of God's yes to you in Christ Jesus? Have you said yes to all of God's yes to you? 
Is there any of God's yes to you to which you are saying no, or maybe, or not now? See, delighting yourself in the Lord means you're saying yes to all the promises that God has given us in Jesus. And, and listen, that's not, that's not always easy. You have to kind of fight to keep saying yes. You have to keep remembering those promises. Because in the hospital, you may not always remember the promise. In the fight with your spouse, you may not always remember the promise. In, in the, the argument with your, your teenager, you may not always remember the promise. So we have to fight to keep those promises. And then we have to keep saying, wait a minute, God said yes to me in Jesus. God said yes to me in Jesus. Everything in my life right now is saying no, but God has said yes to me in Jesus. And that can't be changed. See, when things don't go the way we want them to go, we do not need to look at God and say, no, not now, maybe later. We need to say, yes, yes, I need, I need those promises really bad right now. See, we don't turn away from him. Here's what we do. We keep telling ourselves, wait a minute, Jesus loved me. God pursued me through Jesus. Jesus loved me. He gave himself up for me. And then we keep reminding our minds that Jesus is enough. And Jesus is enough even if Our stomachs are empty, or our bank accounts are empty, or our emotions are empty. And the reason he's enough is because if our bank accounts were full, and if our stomachs were full, and if our emotions were full, but our soul is empty, then we have nothing. That's why Jesus is always enough, because he satisfies the core of our existence. He satisfies our soul. What does that look like in real life? Let's go back to Betsy's question. If God wants me to be single, why hasn't he taken away my desire for marriage? That was four years ago. She was 33 at the time. And I want to tell you the rest of her story. And I'm going to let it be with her words. The rest of the story, by the way, started 24 hours after her article and her question appeared on the Internet. So, like less than a day. This is what she writes. On May 23rd, 2014, the day after my article was published, I received an email from a pastor in Manhattan. He didn't hit on me. He just thanked me for the article. A quick Google search revealed that he was single, originally from London, a Jewish Christian, and not incidentally quite handsome. I was intrigued. I wrote back, and we started corresponding. After a week of emailing, he suggested that we Skype. We talked for a couple of hours that first Skype, and at the end of our conversation, he asked in his elegant British accent if he could fly down to Alabama and take me on a date. Now, I guarantee you, you weren't expecting that sentence today, right? In his British accent, to fly down to Alabama to take me on a date. That's a good sentence. She goes on. On Thanksgiving Day, Bernard Nicholas Howard asked me to marry him. We were on a screened-in porch at my great-grandparents' farm. Somehow this tall, dashing British pastor had found his way to me in Alabama and ended my wait for a bridegroom. We are eagerly awaiting our wedding on May 23rd, a year after he first wrote to me. Our friends and family will feast with us. The wait for him, 39 years, for me, 34, has made finding each other even sweeter. Cool story, right? I mean, they've been married for, you know, three years now. 
I mean, she got the desire of her heart, right? I mean, she asked the question, hey, I got this desire, but it's not being met. What's the deal? Hey, it all worked out, right? She got the desire of her heart. She, she got married. But listen to what she says next. Mission accomplished, right? Wrong. Marriage was not the object of my article, and my singleness wasn't a problem to be solved. The object of my life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Singleness gave me opportunities to live for God's glory. As a single woman longing for marriage, I lived as a picture of the way the church should wait and hope for the return of Christ. And she says this, I felt like my situation turned on a dime. I woke up one morning with no marital prospects, and I went to bed wondering about a handsome British preacher. My life will never be the same. But then she brings it in to us. Your life could change in a blink of an eye. I'm not talking about meeting the love of your life. I'm talking about meeting the one who loved you and gave himself up for you, who went away and promised to come again. And just own this next sentence, not as a scare tactic, but a reality. And hopefully, if you're a believer, as a hope. She writes, Jesus Christ may return at any moment. No one knows the day or hour, so we must always watch and pray. When the wait gets long, you may start to think he's not coming. But one day he will appear. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's why we delight ourselves in the Lord. Because a delight in the Lord is the only delight that will not just be satisfied, but it will be satisfied forever. So we do. We say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.